Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 389 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Friday morning, February 10th, 2022, and Duke is back in the win column. Donald, winning it's, against Clemson. it's February 11th. Is it? <laughs> it's I, February look, 11th, yeah. Look, I, I, I you got the year right. That's pretty good. I they checked the, the month. date literally right as I was saying that and still set the 10. So, you know what? It's, it's that early. It's that early. But the great thing is Duke is back in the win column. We won against Clemson down at Little Giant Coliseum last night. We will recap everything from that game, including a lot of from Jason, who was in the building. We, of course, will preview the Boston College game that is less than 36 hours away after that. And then we have the trade deadline from the NBA. Had a lot of Blue Devils changing cities, so we got to briefly touch on that. First off, quick intros. I am your host, Donald Wine. I am tired because I don't know what date it is. I have, as I always do, my friends Sam Klein and Jason Evans. Sam, good morning to you. Sam is muted, so everything he's saying, it might be poetry, but we don't know what it is. Uh, actually, it was that there was lag in the in my internet connection, so I did not get to begin right at the moment that Donald threw it to me. But hello. Yes, great to see you guys. Lots of Duke basketball this week, and I'm trying to wedge it all in between all the uh, Winter Olympics events that I'm also trying to watch. So it's just a very busy sports-watching week for me. Absolutely. I've been watching a ton of the Olympics. Uh, and it's funny because you'll have some soccer mixed into there, some college basketball mixed into there. Uh, but Jason didn't watch any Olympics yesterday. He watched Duke basketball. Uh, we're going to talk about it more in the in the, in the portion of our recap. But Jason, first off, just how are you feeling this morning from the drive? And, and how was it last night being there? I mean, a little tired. You know, it, it turned into a late night. Eight o'clock game. Um, Clemson's about two hours from Atlanta. So, uh, yeah, you can you can do the math. I, I didn't get to sleep until uh, pretty early this morning. Uh, not last night, this morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but but I'm doing great right now. And it was a fun time. Um, Little John's a, a really it's a nice place to see a game. It's not a big arena. Um, so I didn't have great seats, but my seats were good enough that um, uh, there isn't a bad seat in the house. It's really, you know, and and uh, it, it was it was a it was a really nice, really nice occasion. Little John, if I, if memory serves, is like right around the same number of seats as Cameron, but it's set up in a weird way where you kind of feel, do you feel a little bit further away from the action that you would have, say, if you were the last row in Cameron? Uh, yeah, I think a little bit, but because it's, um, because it's so elevated, uh, you, even though you're maybe further away than you are in Cameron, um, you, you feel like you're on top of the court. Like I, I was, I was up you know, in the upper deck, but I felt like I was really overlooking the court. Like I had a great view of the game and, and, you know, I don't feel like I missed anything, by the way, I want to thank an absolute hero, uh, Brian Biba, um, who, who's a fan of the podcast, huge shout out to Brian a, a few days ago. He, he had originally bought these tickets to go when the game was on December 29th. Um, it got postponed because of COVID and, and he wasn't able to resell them or anything like that. And Brian wrote to us and said, hey, if you guys want to go to the game, um, I'm not having much luck on StubHub. And I was like, wow, dude, you're the best. This is fabulous. So, so I took him up in his offer. offer but a um, uh, huge tip of the hat to Brian Biba for, for providing me with two tickets. I went with my buddy, Josh Tolchin. We drove up. It was really, it was nice. We had a really great time. Josh is a big Duke fan. And um, yeah, it, the, by the way, the place was packed with Duke fans. I would say, you know, if you take out the student section, you know, obviously there are not going to be any Duke fans in the Clemson student section <laughs> or very, very, very few. 
if you take out the student section, which is always going to be primarily, you know, the school and, and you can't really buy those tickets from, from anybody aside from the student section, it was a good 20%, maybe close to 25% Duke fans. There was blue everywhere. The section I was in was probably 50% blue devils. And, uh, good. and I'm not, could, I got a question. Could you guys hear like late in the game? I was going to ask about the let's go Duke chant. Yes. Yeah, yes. I could hear it. And and we've done that. We, we I've seen that on the road before. I at least heard it in broadcast this, you know, not just this season, obviously, but looking at this season, there's been a couple of times where you kind of hear it uh, towards the end of the game. Funny thing enough, I did hear I mean, it at the end of the game uh, last weekend against UNC. It, it, it's also only reserved in, in in instances where Duke is completely deflating the other team, which is what right. and the other teams Carolina fans are gone. And then, and then against Clemson yesterday, uh, because yes, I did hear it on the broadcast and I sort of perked up at that moment. I was like, is that, hang on, this doesn't, this doesn't sound like what it should sound like on this no, broadcast. No. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, and if I'm doing, I guess I'll do my sort of thing on the stadium and what it was like at this point. Um, uh, you know, the students there were really coordinated. They look like they were having fun. There's a DJ. Did they show the DJ on the on the broadcast at all? No. There's a DJ embedded in the stands, like in the midst of the student section. There's a dude with an actual turntable and stuff. And he's just, he was rocking out. The students were having, they were having a great time. It was really, you know, the student section to me looked like a great atmosphere. The rest of it was like a friggin' morgue. Um, um, Josh, Josh told, yeah, I said my friend, buddy Josh, we, when we were sitting, um, we noted that, that the seats were all padded. You know, they, they, they've done several renovations. Uh, Josh pointed out that, that Little John was built for $3 million. And just a few years ago, they did a $60 million renovation. So <laughs> the renovation was, was 20 times as much as it cost to build the building. Um, and part of that renovation was they put in padded seats. And we commented that they had padded seats because the Clemson fans spent the entire time sitting and never once stood up. Uh, it, there were there were a pretty fair number of empty seats, especially like in the really ritzy, expensive section, um, the, the, the like the club level that they have there. I'd say that was no more than fifty percent filled. So, it the the student you know props to the students, but uh, yeah, the rest of the crowd just was not into it. And and two other really quick things I wanted to notice about you know being there. First of all, uh, uh, I loved that Clemson took a moment to honor coach K at the start of the broadcast uh, or start of the game. I should say, right. You know, right before they were announcing the players, uh, it wasn't long. It wasn't involved. They made a donation to the Emily K center, but when they announced that they were doing this, there were a smattering of booze at first, but they were, those booze were swiftly washed away by a, a really strong and nice applause standing ovation from everybody, I- including all the Clemson fans. And, and I thought that really showed a lot of class on their part. And then the last thing I wanted to note it was as we were looking around the place, you know, we're looking at, they've got banners hanging from the ceiling and the such like that among their banners. There, there are a lot of banners that you're like, really? There was a banner for reaching the NIT final four. I was just like, if you got an NIT final four banner, that's, hey, that's UNC's really, got one hey. of those. Yes, they do. <laughs> they have an NIT third place. It's not even the final four. It just says, yeah, but like that third was place or something. Yes, but that was for many, many, many years ago when the NIT was a bigger. You, f- folks forget you may you may be too young. The NIT was a big deal at one time. Um, oh, Jason, I remember I when it was a big too deal to remember. But that. that doesn't. But that doesn't. But that doesn't mean I can't clown them for it. It was a yeah. big deal. You know, what I'm saying here's a funny thing. I'm pretty sure, and, and people can check me on this. I think we had this last time. 
we've never played in the NIT under Coach K. Like, oh, certainly never under Coach K. Yeah, yeah, if we're yeah, bad, like, we're really bad. Right, we're we're just not making anything. <laughs> um, I did want to shout out real quickly before we get into the to the actual recap. I did want to shout out Regina Lee, uh, another listener who offered tickets to uh, me to go. Unfortunately, I was not able to make it down, but I do appreciate her looking out for us in that regard as well. And Jason, I'm glad you and your friend were able to take in the game. I know you were trying to get on press road that didn't work out. So Brian was able to fulfill, fulfill the need for you and get you into the game. So we appreciate him for that. Yeah. And by the way, um, regarding press row, uh, so I'd written to the Clemson sports information department and, and they, we were talking and they, they said from the start, they're like, look, we've got a lot of requests for this game. Um, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're not sure. And at the last minute they told me, yeah, sorry, we're not gonna be able to get you in. Um, uh, it was, it was not a lack of respect. I was told that there were, um, four different Duke outlets that asked for tickets that were denied. Um, but the fact that it is coach K's last season, uh, what I was told was, you know, like the local paper that usually would only send like one guy needed to send like three people, you know, cause they're doing extra articles and stuff like that. And uh, you know, those, they always have to take care of the local guys before they take care of the Duke folks. So, um, uh, but I, I, I do appreciate Clemson people were very nice about the fact that they couldn't accommodate me. <laughs> yeah, but it worked out because you're able to get into the game. Yeah, and you know exactly. what? Let's talk about the game. Uh, as mentioned, Duke went down a little giant Coliseum. We took on the Clemson Tigers. It was a game that was rescheduled from late December when Duke was on a COVID pause. And we were seeking to rebound from a home loss to UVA earlier this week. And rebound we did. We took it to the Tigers, 82 to 64 to final score. As always, we begin with the headlines. And Sam, I will go to you for your headline. Well, I think we have to start with the headline that came in from listeners. Uh, Jared Kraus, or Jared Strauss, excuse me, emailed us, Keels kills cats, which is, uh, which is a good alliteration. Uh, mm-hmm. I like that. So thank you to Jared. I had, uh, I had Duke beats Clemson in football. <laughs> Is that because it, you thought it was a physical game, Sam? I thought it was a fairly physical and scary game. A little bit. Uh, so, a little bit physical. So, a couple so penalty Duke flags on the play. Clemson in football game. I mean, that would be a great headline, you know, uh, in 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 sort of the expected way. But but last night, you know, I felt like, and this is, this is I guess, mostly a commentary on what happened to Wendell Moore. Uh, but I felt like there were there were a few moments in this game, and and this. By the way, this is not just the Clemson players. I thought the Duke players were similarly fired up. And Jason, I don't know if it was that the fans were rocking, um, but it, it there were multiple times, not just when Wendell Moore hit the deck, when I thought the two theme two teams were going to get into a full-on altercation. Um, Mark Williams was kind of chippy last night. Paulo Bancaro was chippy last night. I appreciated it. I like that that Duke was trying to play with a little more swagger, especially after monday's contest against virginia but yeah it was a it was a physical night uh speaking of football shout out to coach mike elko uh, i hope we can actually read that headline in the fall a couple years from now next yeah, time let's we do play that Clemson. yeah that'd be great um jason your headline so i believe it or not i kind of had something a little bit similar not quite the same way but i said duke tames tigers in what could have been a dangerous game because luckily Wendell Moore was not hurt, but boy, it looked like he was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and for me, I did not go with the Wendell Moore theme. I went with another theme. Uh, and I think you'll like this second half keel mode helps Duke quiet the Coliseum uh, because I think that was important to note there. So we begin with the good 
And I, I do want to go back to Jason since he was in the building. Jason, uh, talk, talk to us about one thing that you saw really good from your seat in the Coliseum. So uh, what I really liked was that every time Clemson got close, you know, Duke, Duke got out to a lead. And uh, in fact, fairly quickly, fairly early, Duke had a double digit lead. And Clemson kept on cutting it to six. There was one time in the first half they cut it to four. But for the most part, Duke would be leading by, you know, around 11 or 13 points. And Clemson would cut it to six. And I, I very specifically noted they would cut it exactly to six points. And then Duke would go on a little mini run and get it back out to about 11 again or 13 again. And, and this just happened over and over and over again. Clemson never got it below six. They never got it to the point where, like, Duke had possession and Duke knew that if I don't make a basket here, Clemson could tie the game. You know, like they never got it to a one possession game where Duke would feel some possession pressure. I've heard Coach K in the past talk about possession pressure and Duke never had never had possession pressure. I don't think in this game. And look, I don't think that this was a particularly flashy win by Duke. I I don't think especially on offense. I thought we we. You know, and I'll get to this in the bad. We took some pretty darn questionable shots, but it was a very nice workmanlike win. Um, I thought it was built around some pretty solid defense. And, uh, uh, you know, until Trevor Keels heated up, this was Duke get just getting the job done. But I'll, I'll take that kind of a win any day of the week. Um, we are a super talented team. I mean, there are probably five first round NBA draft picks on this team. I doubt there's any other team in the country that, that's going to, you know, that can come even close to saying that. So if Duke's going to do a workmanlike effort and just hold teams at arm's length while not blowing them out, I can live with that. <laughs> it works for me. Yeah, especially that's a- Jason on. Especially Jason on the road where there's only exactly. you know, the, the, the Carolina game as fun as it was, is an aberration, even for a really, really good Duke team. Um, being able to hold a team on the road at arm's length, especially one in, a, in an environment like Little John, say what you will about Clemson and their season to this point, Little John is a tough place to play. We all know that that's the case, and, and that's about as good of an outcome as you can expect. for Duke. And, 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 and really quick, to your point, I talked about the fact that the crowd, it was like a morgue that the crowd just wasn't into it that much. I think a lot of that was Duke jumped out early, and then they never, they never really had reason to get into it because Clemson was never able to really get back into the game. It, believe me, I, I think that if it had gotten to be a one-possession game, then you would have seen that crowd get off their butts, get off those cushions, and, and the atmosphere would have really ratcheted up. But Duke never let that happen. And that's what you want on the road. And I think that's what we've kind of seen in the last few road games where we've had moments or, or stretches where we're able to just make it where – the crowd in that gym is feeling out and testing out those new padded seats that they may have had in renovations, because that's what you want to see. You want to take the gym out of it because as we've also seen earlier in the season, momentum can kill you and, and can have a swing that will you know help a team come back on you. And Duke is very much doing a very good job at keeping that at bay. So uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, Sam, I want to go to you and, and I want to lead with this. Um, the first half, I thought we were playing well, but for some reason we weren't efficient. And then the second half, it feels like the team as a whole was more efficient, led by Trevor Keels. What did you see from that switch that allowed you to think Duke has it made and this is we're, we're running away with this? 
honestly, I, I don't know exactly what changed, which is, I think, the most surprising thing about it. Trevor Keels, like, all of a sudden morphed back into Trevor Keels against Kentucky. And we've been talking recently about how, you know, he's coming back from the injury. He's not exactly himself. He's, he's coming off the bench, which is different. He hadn't been doing that this year. And all of a sudden, it felt like he he like saw the matrix around his role and, and knew how to find himself in good spots around the perimeter. Like he was, he was making threes last night, which he hadn't done very much in a while. Um, I, I don't know if he's just, if he was just seeing the basket yesterday differently, but it felt like Duke was, um, was producing on offense and, and moving the ball around in ways that were getting him open, getting AJ Griffin open. And I, 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 I like, I wish I had a better, a better understanding of what exactly changed for Duke to make Trevor Keels back into a, a key offensive weapon for them last night. Um, the other, the other part of that I think is that Mark Williams was, was doing an excellent job of being the cleanup guy down low uh, and, and Clemson had to be a little bit more attentive to him because look, he was, he was getting good offensive rebounding position. He was getting all the dunks. There were, there were plays not necessarily designed for him, but, opportunities where guys were looking for him in the post and that just spreads the floor out a little bit more when Mark Williams is on his game. So really quick to, to talk about Trevor Keels, um, uh, you know, 23 points in the second half. It felt like he could get whatever he wanted starting around. I think it was like around the 15 or the 13 minute mark. He started going to the rim and scoring no problem. Then he, you know, started to feel it. He, you know, hit a couple threes, and, and then every time he like got into a tough spot and you're like, oh, you know, what's he going to do now? He was able to draw a foul and, you know, easily, like Sam said, his best half since the second half against Kentucky. But I've got a little bit of a hot take on Trevor Keels. You know, Duke built a double digit lead without him doing very much. And I'm not saying he didn't have a good, no question about it. Trevor Keels had a great game. And the reason this game went from, you know, I was talking about sort of this pedestrian kind of win where Duke's sort of just holding them at arm's length. The reason it went from holding them at arm's length to a laugher was because of Trevor Keels. And I love it. It's great. <laughs> Made those final. There was no drama in the final seven minutes. Thanks to Trevor Keels. But really, Duke built this lead and, and Duke had Clemson down and in trouble, I think, because of Duke's rebounding and, and protecting the ball. Uh, Duke only had seven turnovers in this game. It was, by the way, a really clean game. Clemson only had six turnovers. Um, but Duke only had seven turnovers. And, and as I've said on, you know, many times, I, I think Duke's magic number is around 12. If Duke's less than 12 turnovers, they just don't lose the game. And uh, I thought our, our, our rebounding, even though the final stats, you know, aren't a huge rebounding advantage for Duke, I noticed at one point in the first half, you know, I talked about the fact that Duke built that double digit lead in the first half that, you know, sort of set the tone for the whole game. Duke, Duke had like a 10 rebounding lead, a 10 rebound lead, you know, like with five minutes to go in the first half. And there were multiple possessions where Duke would get multiple offensive rebounds. You know, we'd get three or four cracks at the basket. And we always ended up finishing those with a, with a bucket. And there were also like, I think there were three different possessions where like thanks to offensive rebounds on free throws or thanks to the technical foul when Wendell Moore got hurt, Duke ended up having a five point, a four or five point possession where Clemson never even touched the ball. You know, like we'd get fouled and then we get the rebound and hit a three or we had the technical on a basket, he shoots some free throws and then we hit another basket. 
those are absolute killers when you have the lead. Uh, you know, it was one point, you know, usually you think got, uh, teams got the ball, they go to the other end, they can get a two or a three. Like I said, I think Duke had three different times we got four or five points on a single possession. And that's just, uh, there's just no way for a team to come back on you when, when that kind of thing's happening. Jason, you were mentioning that the first half was kind of built on the lead of rebounding and that Trevor Keels' offense didn't really work itself into that factor until obviously the second half when he went off. But I will argue that he made an impact on that defensive end, particularly with the rebounding. He had six rebounds in the first half, three offensive rebounds, and he actually led our team in rebounds with a grand total of 11, four on the offensive end. So he was very active in other ways on the floor in the first half, I think. Oh, yeah. No, no I, I completely agree about that. And in fact, when I was talking about the rebounding as a key to building our first half lead, a lot of that was Theo John and Mark Williams keeping rebounds a lot. Like neither one of them had huge rebounding totals. But those They're guys tipping kept rebounds or... alive, and Trevor mm-hmm. Keels was the guy who would end up picking up the, you know, picking up the not the loose ball, but you know, the, the tipped rebound. He got a ton of those, and uh, it it was huge. It was huge. The the number of tipped rebounds that Mark Williams or Theo John had le- leads me to the thing that I always kind of think about in my mind that sometimes rebounds should be split like sacks are in the NFL, where you can get a half rebound because there's definitely time. I love where- it. One guy gets the credit for it, but it's clearly one guy's effort that led to that rebound happening, and they should at least get partial credit. But I digress. I think they did great on the rebounding end. Um, We do need to talk about the scary incident that occurred with about three minutes left in the first half. Wendell Moore steals the ball from David Collins coming out of a timeout, uh, if memory serves, and going down on a fast break, the ensuing fast break, trying to dunk the ball. He gets undercut by David Collins and lands very, very scarily on his high back slash neck area. Um, players were separated very, very quickly by the uh, officials. Coach K ended up running out to the court. I know, Jason, we were talking last night, and you mentioned that a lot of the, a lot of the coaches were very much on the court and involved in oh, the action. Wow. I will say that Duke did receive a bench technical for leaving the bench area, which makes sense. And, and honestly, for me, understandable, given what had happened. Uh, David Collins was issued a flagrant two foul that means he was ejected from the game but I will say he did come over and apologize to coach K right after everything happened uh coach K gave him a a little hug and after the game said that everything was behind them and and at that point you know there was no bad blood or ill will between the two teams so I, I think that that's good also the most important thing Wendell got up very you know he was down for a couple moments but he got up walked away and was able to finish the rest of the game. So uh, that part I think is good. I think coach K said they're still evaluating him for soreness today, but other than that, he seemed that he was uh, doing okay with that. So Jason with that, I mean, when that happens, I honestly liked how the team responded to that both with a being angry um, at some point, but also just how they responded with finishing out the half and, and, and rallying behind Window who didn't have his best game, but he was very, very good, especially with assists and just, you know, with his normal, you know, jack of all trades type of offense. Yeah. Wendell had eight assists and no turnovers. Um, he didn't have a great game shooting, but, but that's eight assists and zero turnovers. God, you'll take that any day from a guy. Uh, that when, when the incident happened, when, when Wendell was undercut and, and it looked bad at first, I got to tell you, John Shire. And Nolan Smith, and to a lesser extent, Emil Jefferson. But John Shire and Nolan Smith, those my boys were hot. <laughs> they were ready to throw down. They were like, I, I mean, of course, Duke got a bench technical. 
because Duke's bench was ready to, to, to go. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the view on TV, you, I, I don't think you could exactly tell how far out they got, but oh, they, they were ready. Well, I mean, so the shot, camera, the, the camera the, angles the, from the inline. Yeah. And well, and the camera was also trained on coach K and there's an element of like, you kind of expect coach K to get right out. Shire's in, the story, in, my friend, the refs. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't see we didn't see Shire and Nolan Smith uh, on on wow. the telecast, and it was like it all happened very quickly. I think what was incredible about this incident, at least from watching on TV, is how quickly it went from "Oh my God, that was a scary thing" to everyone has been separated and all of the appropriate fouls have been assessed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that might that might have been like record time to get all that under control, which is a, a huge credit to the referees for for containing that situation because. You know, the moment that you saw Moore get hit and hit the deck, uh, it, it could have gotten a lot uglier um, in the arena. And there was a ref so, so me... right in the middle. There was a ref right in the middle of that. It's like he almost like it was so quick that the ref like almost caught window. Like that's how fast he was to get into that and just basically like shoot everybody else away to make sure that window was OK. And then the other refs kind of making sure all the benches were getting back to their respective positions. Yeah, so so Shire um, Shire was actually ahead of Coach K in terms of approaching the play. Um, Shire crossed half court, um, was really yelling at the Clemson bench. Um, Nolan Nolan was like throwing water cups and stuff. Uh, I mean, th- like I said, those guys were really really upset. But I think because it was assistant coaches and because you know they've got the mat- they're more mature than than players because it was assistant coaches and not players. That's why it was able to, to come down as quickly as it did. That you know, the ref said, hang on, guys, get back. This is not for you. And and they're able to, even though they were very elevated and heated, I think they were able to calm calm it down quicker because they're more mature and they understand, you know, what, what was happening. He, you know, by the way, huge props to Brad Brad Brownell. Coach K at one point turned and somewhat confronted Brownell and was like, you know, you know, obviously I'm up in the stands. I can't read lips or anything like that. My bet is he was saying, what the hell are your guys doing? <laughs> yeah. And, hell was and, not the word he used. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but Brad Brownell um, brought Collins over to hug coach K to, to uh, make sure Wendell Moore was, was doing okay. Uh, after the game, Collins posted on Instagram. He was like, you know, I was going too fast and I couldn't stop myself. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just glad, you know, Wendell isn't hurt. It seemed very genuine. I think it was all, uh, you know, an innocent kind of mistake that he didn't mean to do. Uh, but it, it, it was it was a very tense moment. I'll say that. I will say that a couple of things. One, to Collins, I don't want to say credit, but in Collins's favor, I don't think it was intentional that he went to do that. I think he was going to try and get the foul, but the way, it, like, like you said, it kind of progressed to a point where it was super, super quick. And before you know it, you know, Wendell Moore is, is perpendicular to the floor and uh, or parallel to the floor, I should say. And obviously that was just a precarious situation that, you know, no one wants to be in. And I know he felt bad about it, uh, given and, and it seemed like his apology was genuine. I will quote uh, Coach K. Uh, they asked him, obviously, after the game about it. And he mentioned uh, that Brad apologized. And I said, please, let's just move on. Wendell is good. I hope he's good. We'll see tomorrow after a plane ride and all that. It's best to move on. So uh, I think, uh, like I said, I don't think there's any ill will between the coaches, the coaches or the teams. Obviously, a, a scary situation, but everyone walks away from it. Everyone appears to be okay from it. And I think that's the best thing. 
So on that note, why don't we shift to the bad? And Sam, I'll go to you, obviously, from a game that has a lot of things going on. There, there's obviously some room for improvement in some areas. What did you see? Yeah, I think the most glaring thing from this game is that Paulo Bancaro looked lost on, on offense again. Um, he He's not, you know, as as much as Duke was doing a better job of incorporating Trevor Keels and as, as well as Trevor Keels was executing on offense and AJ Griffin continues to, to execute on offense and Wendell Moore was playing his part, as you guys mentioned. Um, Paulo was not taking good shots. He was not finding his teammates in you know, in, in, in opportune spaces. And I think that there's a little bit of a reset that he's going to need here, you know, most of the way through ACC season to get a sense of, all right, I have all these skills and I know that I'm better than basically anyone that steps on the court with me. How do I work with the team that I've got? And, and that's not to say that this team isn't talented. The team is very talented. There are a lot of other first round picks on this team with him. Um, but it feels like he's, he's kind of lost the, the thread a little bit. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's something that like can't be rectified. Um, the, the coaching staff, I think can do a good job with him. The, the trouble sometimes is that coach K has a way of, of sort of setting the, the, the strategy and leaving it and letting the guys figure it out. He said after the other game, uh, I, I don't remember if it was after UVA or UNC, but he said, Paulo has to shoot more. Paulo has to be more involved in the offense. And, and I wonder how well that has translated uh, from, you know, from, from his mind to what's happening on the court. Well, Paulo has to shoot more, but he has to take good shots. The thing that is really frustrating about watching Paulo Bancaro play basketball is that he sometimes falls in love with, with bad shots. <clears throat> On this game, he was 5 of 15 from the field. And very early on, uh, like it's probably in the first three minutes or so, he took about a 17-footer that he hit. And I turned to my buddy Josh, and I was like, that's a terrible shot. I know he hit it, and good on him, but that was a terrible shot. And then he proceeded to continue taking bad shots. Um, I've mentioned this before, Ben Torvik charts you know where you take your shots from and he had paulo taking seven mid-range jumpers and only hitting two of them the mid-range jumper is a bad shot ideally you should take almost none of them you should really only take a mid-range jumper when you're pretty much uncovered that's what the analytics experts will tell you about basketball and paulo was taking all of his shots while covered while really well covered by clemson virtually the entire game for, for him to take seven mid-range jumpers is just, that's bad offense on Duke's part. And by the way, Wendell Moore, who, who you know, we talked about eight assists and zero turnovers. He should probably get a turnover for some of the bad shots he took. He took six mid-range jumpers and only hit one of them. Um, at the mid-range is a trap. Don't fall into it. And, and, and I, I, you know, by the way, I want to mention Trevor Keels, did a great job of not taking. Usually Trevor's taking mid-range shot. He did not. He only took mm-hmm. one mid-range shot. It was when he was wide open and he hit it. All his other shots were either threes or at the rim. Paulo needs to become a guy who's either taking threes or taking shots at the rim. And if this mid-range stuff continues, he's going to continue to have games where he scores 15 points on 15 shots. That's what he did last night. If you get 15 points on 15 shots, one point per shot, that's bad. That's really bad because he had he – had, free throws, you know, to help him get to the 15 points. He needs to be more efficient than that. This Duke team does not reach New Orleans. 
They will not reach the final four with Paula Bancaro taking this many bad shots. I, I, I will tell that to you right now. And no matter how much Mark Williams can go eight for eight and do nothing but shoot dunks, nothing but dunks and one little hook shot, no matter how much, you know, Trevor Keels cleans it up and, and shoots nine of 13 while mostly shooting, you know, at the rim. We need Paula Bancaro to not be the guy who's taking seven or eight bad mid-range contested jumpers. We're lucky we win. It, it takes Mark Williams going eight for eight, Trevor Keels going nine for 13 for us to win a game where Paulo takes so many bad shots. And I think the thing about Paulo is that we've seen him shoot threes and his stroke is nice. His stroke can be good enough to shoot, you know, 35, 38% from three if he did that more, but he's not shooting it more because as you mentioned, he's stepping inside the line. And I, I call him Kyle, Kyle Singler twos, but Kyle Singler made a, a name of it because he, he was like, it felt, it felt like he was 80% from 15 to 18 feet. No one's doing that anymore. And that's also just not how the game works anymore where people are shooting those. So I think when it comes to Paulo, either take a step out or go to the hole. I think those have been the two frustrations that we've talked about over the last few weeks. And to me, it, here's the thing though. I think a lot of people are over scrutinizing him just a bit, right? Like we want him to succeed. We want him to be really great. And we think he is great. And, and we think when games happen where he's being inefficient, that he can be a lot better. But I will say this, he's still fine. Like it, there, we're not talking about, you know, reinventing his shot or anything like that or reinventing his game. It's just little tweaks that hopefully he's in the gym working on. Obviously there's a quick turnaround, but I think these things he's in a rut right now, but very eventually he's going to figure it out. And hopefully he can do that before March, because as you said, Jason, we need to be shooting more efficient as a team when we get to March. I, I want to be clear about something regarding Paulo. At the moment, and, and I'm just trying to be honest, at the moment, Paulo Bancaro has played his way out of being in the conversation for the number one pick in the NBA draft. I think there's little question of that right now at this moment. Um, in fact, I think he's probably looking at being the number three or number four pick. Um, you know, not that that's bad, and that's you know great and huge on him. He's also played his way out of, I think, being in the conversation for first-team All-American. Um, and, in fact, I think there's probably a pretty good case. I think Alondis Williams probably is the frontrunner for ACC Player of the Year right now. And I think those are all things that, I don't know, three weeks ago or so, you, you would have said Paulo was in the conversation for first-team All-American and, and perhaps mm -hmm. even like Wooden Award kind of stuff. Paulo was the frontrunner for ACC Player of the Year. Paulo was very much in contention with Jabari Smith and Chet Holmgren for the number one pick in the draft. He reached that point because he's that good. And he's now played his way out of the, that point, but he can play his way back to it. But being honest at the moment, Paulo's play past two weeks or so has taken him out of all those really significant kind of honors and, and I know he wants to get back there. He just has to find a way to get efficient again. It's the efficiency, I think, that's killing him. He can't take those foul line contested shots. They're just not going down. And um, if he keeps on taking them, he's putting Duke in, in a lot of peril. And I think all the team, right? I mean, the first half I didn't think was as efficient by any stretch than the second half. And I, I think we've had stretches where we have halves where we go uh, efficient from offense. But I think we just need to figure out how to put it together uh, for a for a whole game.
Jason, I give you the last word. Talk to me about uh, some of the guard play that we saw from Jeremy Roach. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not calling anybody out specifically. I, I, I don't want to be doing that, but Jeremy Roach had a, had a pretty awful game. Uh, have you guys looked at the plus minus Jason? You're exactly calling people out. Let's not. <laughs> yeah. I, you start with, when you start with, I don't want to call out Jeremy Roach, but Jeremy Roach, no, like, no, come on no offense, but Jeremy Roach <laughs> did not have a good game. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys have seen the plus minus and uh, a game the Duke wins by close to 20 points in a game where like Wendell Moore had a plus 30 Paulo's plus 24 Keels is plus 25. My man, Jeremy Roach had a negative 12. Think about how hard that is to do in a game that you win. And he plays big. He's a starter. He plays big minutes. And he he put up a negative 12 plus minus in a game where Duke won by 18. Uh, There's no easy way to say this. When Jeremy Roach was in the game, Duke was far, far worse than they were when he was not in the game. He shot one of five. There were a couple possessions where I felt like he had decided I'm taking a shot, even though he didn't ever really find himself a shot. And the key thing for Jeremy Roach is he had zero assists. Jeremy needs to get assists. That's that's his game. And as and great as Wendell Moore was, there. as great as Wendell Moore was getting eight assists for Jeremy to get zero, that's a problem. I I, I have to think we're going to see Trevor Keels back as the starter. Um, you know, probably probably if not against Boston College very soon thereafter and i hope jeremy can pick up his play because he, he was playing great you know a week and a half or so ago yeah like i said i think the entire team we have bits and pieces that we just need to put together and play a complete game we did not have it against clemson but i think we played very very well in the night and we end with the win we will leave it there coming up the blue devils head to boston for a date with the boston college eagles we will preview that game and we will also discuss the wild NBA trade deadline. But stay tuned. We will do all that on the other side of this break. We are back. And next up for the Blue Devils is a very quick turnaround. They travel up to Sam's neck of the woods to take on Boston College tomorrow evening. They are struggling this season, nine and three overall, four and eight in the ACC. Uh, Their key wins, they have beaten Clemson, Notre Dame, and Virginia Tech, but they have bad losses to Albany, twice to Rhode Island, uh, Pittsburgh, and Georgia Tech. So they've lost their last two in a row. They last played on Tuesday, so they have a little bit of a breather uh, while Duke has been on the road. But Sam, it is your neck of the woods. I I don't know if you're going to the game. I know you've been talking about trying to go to the game tomorrow night, but give us a breakdown of the Boston College Eagles. What do we expect? Oh, oh, I'm going to the game. I, I bought tickets a while ago. And uh, I'm very excited to see Duke in an arena that I've never seen them in. So that is pretty cool. Donald, <laughs> do you know how hard it is to lose to Rhode Island twice in the same year as an ACC in, in, team? In like three days. They did in like three days, too. You got to schedule Rhode Island twice to do that. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, Boston College. And I, I think the other thing you said, um, I think you slipped up a little bit. You said they're nine and three. They're nine and 13. Uh, and and Boston College fired Jim Christian at the end of last season and brought in Earl Grant. Um, things have not really turned around for the Boston College Eagles. Unfortunately, some of the same guys are here that were that were here last year. So, you know, part of this is personnel. They just they haven't turned over the roster quite enough. And man, it, it, like I, I, I struggle to tell you that there that there is something that you really need to look out for 
when you're playing Boston College. And I know Jason will get into the the analytics a little bit, but just just glancing over some of the um, some of the players on this team and the performances recently, it, it's pretty ugly. They're on a two game losing streak. They they most recently lost to Syracuse on Tuesday, um, but also lost at, at UVA last week uh, in the ACC. They've lost four of their last five. Um, things are, are are fairly bleak for Boston College, so maybe this is the the moment when they're going to to get the motivation and 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 show up for an ACC game. That does not seem to be happening anytime recently. So the guys that you're going to see Duke play on Saturday, um, I think Duke fans will remember Makai Ashton Langford. Uh, he's the senior on this team. He's a transfer in from Providence, um, and his younger brother Demar Langford is also on the team. He's a sophomore. Uh, so, so those guys are, uh, they're, they're Massachusetts natives. So they are playing in their backyard. I believe that they both also went to prep school, uh, up in New Hampshire and, uh, they are, I mean, for lack of a better term, the stars of this team, along with freshman Jaden Zachary, who is the, the only three point shooter who's, who's worth his salt. He's the only guy on the team shooting over 33%. He's 43% from beyond the arc. So you want to start on one thing on, on defense for Duke, it's containing Jaden Zachary. Um, but those three guards get a, a big chunk of, of minutes for Boston College. Um, one fun note, they have a big man whose name is Quentin Post. And he plays, he plays uh, he's a big man. And his name is Quentin Post. I thought that was great. Um, Another thing that's interesting about BC, we've talked about this with a couple teams, and this is certainly the case with Duke. They play a short bench, um, not a bunch of talented guys, and there aren't very many of them. So uh, Duke can really, you know, get the get get the get the foot on their necks early in this one. I hope and expect that Duke is going to be able to handle Boston College with even more ease than that which they handled Clemson with. The only concern for me really here, and and if, I don't want to jinx it, I'm just telling you what I think is going to happen. The only concern for me is that it's a quick turnaround. Duke was obviously at Clemson late last night. They, I'm sure, flew home to Durham. You know, no, 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 no. They did not. They they flew directly to Boston. They flew they directly actually, to Boston. They flew, oh, so yeah. they didn't. So they didn't Good. do what they did against uh, what they what they didn't do against Louisville and Notre Dame. Um, right. I don't know if this is a lesson learned or this is just how the schedule worked out. But uh, so I guess they're in Boston now. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll go find them and have dinner tonight with the team. No, I'm not going to do that. But they. Um, they are on the road now. This is really a road trip. And so it doesn't mean that they get sort of the appropriate recovery time from last night until Saturday. As Donald said, when we started the show, we're recording, you know, right around when we normally record these things. And Duke is only 36 hours, less than 36 hours away from their next game. So the quick turnaround is, is difficult, but if you're going to have a quick turnaround, you might as well have it against BC. Yes. I think we all want to play BC. I think the three of us should find two other guys and maybe we can play Boston College, but we're not going to do that. The Blue Devils are going to do that. Advanced stats time. Jason, what do you got about Boston College? Uh, they're bad. Yeah, this just in. Boston College is not good. 159th in Ken Palm. Uh, they play really slow. Their tempo is 286th. So uh, they take a long time shooting the ball. They take a long time playing defense. Uh, this is going to be a slow game. Uh, again, not quite Virginia slow, but it, it'll be pretty slow. So I'm going to tell you some of the things that Boston College is among the 50 worst teams in the country yet. We're just going to talk about things where they are ranked below 300th in the country. Effective field goal percentage. It's a team that only hits 45% of their field goals. Part of that is the fact that they only hit 30% of their threes. They hit less than 46% of their two-point shots. Boy, do you know how bad you have to be to hit less than 46% of your two-point shots? 
They get their shots blocked a lot. They're bad at defending the three. You want a lethal combination in college basketball. If you only shoot 30% on threes and your opponents hit 37% of their threes, you are in real, real trouble, my friends. <laughs> uh, there's just so much that you look at. They're, they're one of the worst teams in the country in terms of the number of three-pointers they take. You know, they're terrible at shooting them, so maybe it's good that they don't take a lot of them. But, but the result of that is that uh, they just don't score many points beyond the arc. And in modern college basketball and pro basketball, you got to get points beyond the arc. I, yeah, I could go on and on with stuff. Um, they, they, you know, they're in terms of stuff. They're they're good at. They're, they're a good defensive rebounding team. They're pretty good on the boards. I mean, they're they're a good rebounding team. That's sort of their strength. Um, and they don't turn the ball over a ton. Uh, so they hold on to the ball and they rebound well. But when it comes to either putting the ball in the basket or stopping the other team from putting the ball in the basket, they're they're not good at those two things. And and this may come as a shock to people, but putting the ball in the basket. And stopping the other team from putting the ball in the basket is kind of the most important part of basketball. So <laughs> that's it what does I got help. analytics. Yeah, that does help to, you know, make sure that the other team doesn't score and that you score more points than they do. Uh, I, I will ask Jason, name one thing that Boston College does do good that we should be looking out for. Well, well like I said, I think it's the rebounding. Uh, and, and lately, Duke has been... Um, really taking advantage of rebounding more than anything else. But I mean, they're one of the 40 best defensive rebounding teams in the country. And, uh, you know, typically, at least in recent games, Duke has been getting a lot of offensive boards. We talked about how important that was against Clemson. We've seen it in other games. Uh, one key challenge for Duke will be to see if they can continue to get offensive boards because that's arguably the thing that, that this Boston College team does better than anything else. Uh, if Duke gets offensive rebounds, then Boston College is really sunk because, like I said, they just don't do anything else well. So we will see if that happens all tomorrow night, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Sam will be there. We will get his full account on what it was like to be in Chestnut Hill uh, on after this, probably sometime this weekend. But before we wrap up very quickly, uh, if you are an NBA fan, then yesterday was for you because the NBA trade deadline was out of this world wild. Um, but there are a lot of Blue Devils that were on the move. So I'm just going to highlight the trades involving Blue Devils. The biggest trade in the world yesterday, the biggest sports news probably in the world yesterday, James Harden trade from the Brooklyn Nets to the Philadelphia 76ers in exchange for Ben Simmons, Andre Drummond, two draft picks, and Seth Curry. Yes, Doc Rivers has now traded his son and his son-in-law in his coaching career Uh Seth Curry, of course, is his son-in-law. He is now going to the Brooklyn Nets. I will say there was a couple of personal ones that were involved uh, involving Blue Devils. Marvin Bagley was involved in a 14 trade that also included Rodney Hood and one-time Blue Devil Simi Ojale. Marvin Bagley ends up with my Detroit Pistons, joining Frank Jackson, and Rodney Hood and Simi will join Luke Kennard on the Clippers. So a lot of Blue Devils trading there. I will hopefully get to see Marvin Bagley and Frank Jackson right here in D.C. on Monday, Valentine's Day. That's my Valentine's gift. And they might be playing Vernon Carey because Vernon Carey is coming to D.C. He was traded to the Wizards in a deal that sent Montrez Harrell to the Hornets. So, guys, a lot of trades, a lot of involving Blue Devils may not be the focal points of some of these trades. But, Sam, you have a team that has a player now in Vernon Carey Jr. How do you feel about the Wizards getting another Blue Devil? Man, it feels like these these opportunities are few and far between for the Wizards. I don't know if there's still a if there's still a Maryland fan 
uh, situation going on in the front office, but I guess they got Vernon Carey. I don't know if he's the most remarkable blue devil in, in basketball, but um, hopefully this is a, this is an opportunity for him. Uh, you know, it's not, like I said, he's, he's not been, he's not been the most productive guy. I'm honestly more excited about, about Seth Curry um, going to the Nets situation, which is a, it, it feels like the Nets are are constantly trying to figure out what to do with all the stars that they've had. Um, but I, I really want Seth Curry to get back into a deep playoff run because he can really light it up in the playoffs and uh, you know, playing alongside Kevin Durant is probably the best thing for, for an offensive player who's trying to just, just get a little bit more open and Seth Curry doesn't need much of a, of an opening to be a super effective offensive player. You know, I think Seth Curry was the key to getting that deal done because we'd heard for several days that the, the Harden for Simmons thing was really being talked about and Brooklyn really wanted Seth Curry and Philadelphia was like, first of all, Joel Embiid loves playing with Seth and Philadelphia did not want to give up Seth Curry. They were saying like, yeah, take, uh, you know, Matisse Tyble is instead, or, you know, they were trying everything they could to not give up Seth. And I think at the last minute when they realized, look, we, we've got to make this deal. We got to get James Harden. I mean, Daryl Morey wanted James Harden back, you know, on his team and, and they realized they had to give up Seth. So I, I think that was what convinced Brooklyn to make the deal. Um, that getting Seth was so essential. I mean, the, the notion of a guy like Seth who, who stretches the floor, who cannot be left open from three, you know, one of the best three point shooters in the entire league, you cannot leave him open. When you have a team that has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving taking the ball, the bucket, and you're able to spread out the defense that that's, that's huge for Brooklyn. I mean, huge. So uh, I, 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 I think Brooklyn really fleeced Philadelphia in this deal. I don't think it's a, Oh yeah. Uh, I, I think it was a bad deal for Philadelphia. I think Philadelphia made a mistake. I mean, Ben Simmons forced their hand to some extent. Uh, and by, by and James Harden did on the other side too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, but Seth was a huge, huge key in that deal. And, and I'm, I'm real excited to see him on that Brooklyn team. Um, I, I, I kind of think if Kevin Durant is able to come back healthy, I, I think Brooklyn's probably the favorites now in, in the East. I mean, they still have a long way to go. They're in eighth in the East right now, but of course there's been a lot of miss, you know, moving pieces, especially with Kyrie only playing half of games on the road uh, where he's allowed to play at this point. Uh, but I think Seth Curry was the key in this deal for this reason with James Harden, even with James Harden on the team, you had, uh, three pointers and you had free throws where he was ex- excellent at they're getting Ben Simmons, who is excellent at neither of those things. In fact, he is very, very bad at three pointers. He re- he rarely takes them. And from the free throw line, he was so bad that he was being removed from playoff games in the third quarter because they were playing hack a bed. And, and so that is uh, something where they needed someone to complement that star with the pieces that he is lacking. Seth Curry fits those to a T, but very quickly for me, Marvin Bagley moving to the Pistons, I think would be terrific for the Pistons. Uh, I really love this move also for him because he has kind of been stuck in purgatory in, in Sacramento for a year or two and has been trying to get out. They've been trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. Um, but finally, he goes to the Pistons. One thing about him that we all know, he is incredible inside the paint. He shoots 72% on, on, on shots inside of five feet. He only takes 28% of his shots from inside five feet. So what the Pistons are hopefully going to do, they have guys that can spread the floor. And if he could just be that guy that can work the paint, 
I think he's going to revive his career in Detroit. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to seeing him play on Monday, hopefully for the Pistons. Uh, you know, Bagley is not going to be the starter in Detroit. Uh, Jeremy Grant is their starting power forward and, and is a very good NBA player. I'm a little surprised that there was lots of talk that they were going to move him at the deadline and, and they decided not to. He's still hurt. And, and I think that's why they got Bagley's kind of, you know, re- recovery for it. But there, I think the problem with Jeremy Grant is he wants to stay in Detroit, which is something very rare for us Pistons fans, for someone who actually wants to be there and help build something. But he also recognizes that, hey, if you're going to get something for me, get it and, and make it good. The Pistons just didn't find anything that was worth trading uh, for Jeremy Grant. Yeah, and and so the point I was going to make about Marvin Bagley is he's not. I think he's not going to be. You know, when they get sort of to a regular rotation there in Detroit, he's not going to be starting. I think that can be good for him. I think he can be. He can play a larger role. You know, as as that backup kind of player on that second unit, and perhaps you know rehabilitate his reputation around the league a little bit um being a, a a really good you know a super sub kind of kind of player he's still got potential he's still he's still young and and i still think marvin bagley can have a, a big impact on the nba and I, I i like the trade for detroit to get him out of he was in a bad situation in sacramento he, absolutely he, you know he and the coaching staff and the and the front office were not happy um making him happy uh in detroit Will could go a long way toward Marvin Bagley realizing that potential. I mean, I'm sure Marvin Bagley is sick of hearing that he got picked right before Luka Doncic and right before Trey Young, who are two of the stars in the league. Uh, he Bagley was picked there because he's capable of being a huge impact player in the NBA. And Donald, I know as a Pistons fan, you're hoping he he's able to do it in a Detroit uniform. Absolutely. And and the thing about Troy Reaver, the GM, is he has gone after guys that people considered lost causes or, or, you know, has-beens or whatever. And a lot of those guys have actually really done well in reviving their careers in Detroit over the last like year and a half. And we've had a lot of turnover. I mean, going in the other way, Trey Lyles and, and Josh Jackson, two guys who came to Detroit where people were like, why are you getting those guys? And they turned into really nice pieces for us. Uh, even though the Pistons aren't yet winning, we're in a process where we're still trying to reinvent who we are around Kate Cunningham. And I think Marvin Bagley could is still young enough. I think, what is he, 23 years old, I think? He's still young enough that he can be one of those future pieces uh, of, of a core for the Pistons. So, yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Get this, Bagley's only 22. 22, he's, yeah. I mean, I knew he was young. He, he doesn't turn 23 until next month, until March. So yeah, I, mean, he's I remember very young. He yeah. reclassified, so he was like 17 years old when he was at Duke, and it seems like he hasn't been in the league that long, but he's been in the league about five years now. So yeah, it, it makes sense that he is still very young and still, again, not even. I think he's four years away from the prime of his career. Yeah, and uh, and by the way, speaking of how long he's been in the league, his rookie deal is up, and um, I, I'm pretty sure after the season he is a free agent. Um, or, or either that he's extension eligible, but in any event, you know, th- this is a big moment for him um, to, to hopefully show Detroit that they made uh, the right move by trading for him and that he is valuable uh, because that second contract uh, th- that's where guys start to really make the big money. Absolutely. And we'll see what he can do if, if he does that in Detroit. Uh, but I, I am, I, for one, I'm very excited to be able to see number 35 uh, in a Pistons uniform 
uh, this year. So with that, that will do it for episode 389 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Thank you all so much for listening and for emailing us. We really appreciate everything that you guys are sending us. We will be back later on this weekend to recap Boston College and to get you ready for the week ahead of us. So until then, continue to send us those emails, questions, comments, headlines, ticket offers. Doesn't matter. We love hearing from you. DBRpodcast at gmail.com. So for Sam Klein and Jason Evans, I am Donald Wine. This is the DBR Podcast. Duke Band, take us home. Yeah, I was going to say, Jason, how are you feeling? A little tired. Got back around 12.45 or so. Oh, boy. That's not too bad. I mean, mean, that's not too bad. The the problem is, you know, you never fall asleep immediately. Yeah, that's the tough part. What time do you go to bed? Uh, I probably got to sleep around 1.30, I guess. Yeah. I mean, when the worst for me is when you have those games in Durham that are at 9.00. And I've driven down for those and driven back the same night because oh, they have work just, next day. Oh, you don't get back until you don't get back until 3 a.m. And then, like you said, you just kind of you're wired. You're like, yeah, you're wi- like not even wired, but you're just sitting there and your body's like, yo, I'm tired. We need sleep. And you tell your body, yeah, let's go to sleep. And your body's like, nah, I'm good. We're just going <laughs> to. Well, yeah, because you've, you you've, you've tried to you tried to calibrate like you needed to get home if you were driving. So you can't mm-hmm. be like sleepy, ready for bed at the moment you arrive home. No way. That is the fear. That is the fear. Yeah. On, and so the other thing th- worse. Wait, wait, really quick. There is nothing worse than being, you know, a half hour or even 15 minutes away from your destination and feeling your eyes drooping. And you're like, yeah, what the fuck am I going to do? Yeah, I, uh, I, <laughs> well, I, fell asleep, me, I, I fell asleep driving once uh, in my neighborhood when I was a kid. It was and I crashed into a mailbox is like the fucking scariest thing. Terrifying. Yeah. So I've yeah, I've pulled over before, like slept in some hotel parking lot for yeah, a couple hours. That. I will say this the one thing that you think would be better but isn't is taking the bus, which I've done before as well. Really? Um, because the I've taken they have a mega bus that goes from DC to Durham. So I've taken right. that down, it gets you in around like four o'clock. So it's perfect for any game, right? The problem is the next bus doesn't leave because it goes basically goes mega bus from uh, DC, Richmond, Durham, Charlotte, Atlanta, then turns around and comes back. So the bus going back to DC doesn't arrive in Durham until 3.30 in the morning. So you have to kind of stay up <laughs> until 3.30. And then you oh, try we to did crash. this once. Yeah. And then you try I to crash on the me. bus. Yeah. And then we wake up. It's 8 a.m. You're in DC and your body is like, look, we're not doing this again. That's the like, um, this is stupid. <laughs> that's the experience of the red eye from Denver to Boston, which mm-hmm. is a real flight, but definitely should not be. It's um, just short enough that you can't really get enough sleep to make. You're it in the air. Your you're in the air for maybe three and a half hours, right? Um, but you take off at eleven and you land at five thirty, which like is kind of you know my normal, you know, like is close to like a normal sleep night, except that the times it's terrible. That yeah. that flight. I, I appreciate that it exists, but it really, really sucks.